Let's stand and take our Bibles, please. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Your visitor or guest, welcome to Heritage Baptist Church this morning. We're thankful you're here. And hopefully on the way in, you were greeted by our greeters and received a visitor's packet. And we just pray that this morning be a delightful time for you as, as you worship the Lord with us here. Isaiah chapter 5. Tonight we'll be back in Revelation 2. I hope you'll be here for that tonight and our series in Revelation. Isaiah chapter 5. Your neighbor next to you doesn't have a Bible. Look around you. Members, share your Bible with them, especially if they do not have a King James Version translation. Share your Bible with them so they get exactly the right words there. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned, nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant, and he looketh for judgment, but behold oppression for righteousness, but behold a cry. Isaiah chapter 5 is a, a ballad. It's a love song. It starts off in verse 1, Now will I sing to my well-beloved, he speaks about a vineyard. We'll say more about that this morning. But in verse 4, there's a question that God asks. I appreciate the special number that was chosen for this morning, just before this message. I wish I'd given him more. And God asks a question in verse 4 to his people. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? That's an interesting question. God asks, what could I have done more for my vineyard? And we just want to pause for a minute to think about that question that God asks us. Everything I've done for you, what could I have done more? I've done everything you need, but what could I have done more? Father, this morning already as we get to this important segment of the service. I believe your name has been glorified. I believe the message of salvation has been proclaimed with simplicity and understanding. I believe your people have sensed a spirit of receiving the love of God, the grace of the Lord. And fathers, we start this preaching time. I thank you that you love us. I thank you. No words can explain the love of God that you have for us. I thank you today that you know the very minutest, the smallest detail of our life. And you're concerned, even more than we are, about what happens with our life. But I'm reminded this morning that preaching services are times of decision-making, there are opportunities and events where God has the privilege and opportunity to work in our hearts. Father, drill deep through your word. Pierce us through your word. Teach us through your word. Take away the scales from our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of the law of God. Give us a hunger and thirst for you like never we've had before. I pray for someone here today who's not certain about where they'll spend eternity, 
that before they leave this morning, they would put their faith and trust in your son, Jesus Christ, as Savior. Enable me this morning. I pray for the fullness of the Spirit once again. I pray that you feed the souls of your people. Love them through this message. Give them oversight and direction. Enable them to coalesce together as a team in serving Christ. And we'll give you glory and thanks for what you'll do. We pray all these things in the precious, wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people say, amen. You may be seated. Those of you new to the church or maybe you haven't been here for a little bit, we are in a series we began in January from the book of Isaiah. And the theme is taken out of Isaiah chapter 40, Behold Your God. And uh, this morning, we, as we look at who God is, we see the picture, the symbol, we see the image of a vineyard being used here. Vineyards are prominent in the Bible. I'll say more about that in a minute. But in Isaiah alone, the word vineyard is used seven times in Isaiah chapter 5. It's used 11 times in the entire book of Isaiah. We cannot go through the Bible of recognizing there are 89 distinct times that reference is given to the word vineyard. And then added to that is the word vine. Added to that is the word husbandman. Added to that is the product of the vine, which is the grape. California is a major grape-producing state. During 2017, there was more than 7.36 million tons of grapes that were grown commercially throughout the United States, if you can fathom that. 7.36 million tons. California alone accounted for 6.48 million tons of that, or 88% of the grapes grown in the United States. That's a lot of grapes, amen? Not about you, I love grapes. They're healthy for you, amen? Red grapes, black grapes, I don't care so much for green grapes, they're good, but I love the red. I like them black. And um, if you drive up the, the Napa Sonoma Valley, aside from the wine industry being very prominent there, you drive up there, you can't help but notice those landscapes with vines that are growing. And if you catch it at the right time of the day, perhaps at sunrise or sunset, if you catch at the right moment of the day, the sun glistening off those beautiful vineyards and just the abundance of the harvest that are there. And you go up Highway 580 and you get to what used to be the barren landscape of the hills of Livermore. And you see those beautiful landscapes now covered with these beautiful vines that somehow just dress up the hillsides and dress up the valleys. And you go sometimes around Highway 1 or down our Monterey Coast, down that area, and you'll see grape, grape, grape uh, vineyards growing in abundance. I mean, they, they just fill up a gap there. They're just so beautiful there. And when we consider vineyards, they take a landscape and hillside that is barren and make it very beautiful. And if you lived in Israel back in the day, you have to bear in mind that the Middle East as it was, being very arid and being very barren, and hillsides that were just, you know, they would be kind of like our hillsides. It would be green after the rain and very lush and beautiful. I was taking Brother Fagali around last Sunday after church, and we're just driving around. Of course, you know right now we just, we're come, just finished a great rain season, and he was remarking, he says, by the hills are so beautiful around here in this part of California. And I said, yes, they are, and pray that we'll have a little bit more rain before April comes here and, or before the end of April because we like to keep it that way because by the time May comes along and, and there's a cessation of rain the, uh, and the sun is down, it's a little bit warmer, things become very brown very quickly there. And, and what used to be very lush and green and beautiful looking becomes very, uh, be very, becomes very barren, if you would, and, and desolate and not really appealing to the eye there, per se. And in Israel, back in the day, Land that did not have any vineyards on it was considered cheap land and uh, affordable land and inexpensive land. And landowners would go in and they would, they would harvest the land and they would cultivate the land and they'd prepare it, they'd break up the soil and, and they'd find a way to clear out all the stones as we'll see in just a moment and, and they'll build hedges around it and they would take a piece of land and the vision a landowner would have back in those days, they'd, they'd look at this land and they would say, my, just think if we grew a vineyard here. And every landowner's dream was to plant a vineyard because they realized that grapes were an essential part of their commerce and their agriculture. And, and they would, you can imagine this, that if you could buy as much land as you could, you'd buy it and you would convert that land as best you could so you could plant vineyards on it and, and, have, and grow wheat on it and, and have a great commercial area and be a supplier to the economy there. And they thought about those things and grapes were used great in abundance and many times it would, they would put, uh, as a, in fact, all the time they would, they would plant these vineyards, they would cultivate these vines as well 
we'll see in just a minute. And, and they, would, they would do this cross-pollination that, that we hadn't even come up with that term at that time. That They would cross-pollinate it so that the vines would be cultivated. And then they would plant a specific vine there so that that vine would grow and produce sweet grapes and succulent grapes and delicious grapes. And, and then they would put a wine press there that so they would, they would uh, many times would just turn it into juice because, many, because as you know, the water system was not, uh, was not well treated and they didn't have treatment systems like we do in these days. And to reserve it so when sour and ferment, they would many times would just convert into juice and then they would boil it and until it became a little bit thickened and they would capture this thickened essence, if you would, of this grapes and they would put it under the ground where it would be very cool. They would probably dig about three feet deep under and they would bury it under there to keep it cool. And every now and then if they wanted something sweet, they basically, there was their version of refrigeration. They would take this, 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 uh, this grape essence they had, this grape juice, this very thick grape juice and they would pull it out of the ground and out of this, this container they would have and, and they would just put it out and mix it with water and you kind of like was the forerunner really of a frozen grape juice, if I could say that, you know. And they would do those kind of things. And it was just something very sweet that everybody in the family could enjoy there. And it was an important part of the economy to have vineyards and grow that. And, and you could take a barren piece of land and make that land very, uh, uh, from being very, very cheap and uh, undesirable to becoming land that would be very desirable. And all of a sudden the price would appreciate greatly because everyone placed a great premium and value on having a vineyard there. And God takes the imagery, if you would, in Isaiah chapter 5, of talking to us about a vineyard, God's vineyard. Vineyards in the Bible are symbols that illustrate great Bible truths. And we see this morning, the, as given to us in verse 7, that the symbol of a vineyard describes us the nations of Israel and Judah. Notice verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. God was saying, I, as we'll see, he's saying, I took you from being worthless, undesirable, being a nobody. And I took you, you were barren and useless. And I cultivated you. And I planted you. And I put you in a fruitful hill. And where I put you, I made you into something. I took something that was nothing and made you into something. Aren't you glad this morning that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature? All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God took, these, God took these people here and he just said, listen, I want you to understand you are my pleasant plant and you are my choice vineyard. And, and you have to bear in mind that imagery, that, that concoction, that idea that land was important in those days as it is today. But to have a vineyard was very important. And God said, you're just like a vineyard in Israel. And God uses this imagery of a vineyard to help us understand God, God's work in our lives. Notice he starts off in verse one by saying, now... Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Chapter 5, verse 1 connects to the previous chapter. Because in the previous chapter, if you remember two or three weeks ago, as we looked at Isaiah chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, God dealing with his people who were errant and sinful and far away from him says, listen, in verse, chapter 4, verse 5, that he would create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flame of fire by night, an image that was very rich in their minds that God first introduced to them when they left Egypt. And I want to underscore, maybe mark in your Bibles this morning, that the idea of them having left Egypt, back in Exodus chapter 12 and 13, was always embedded in their minds and their hearts. And he's reminding them, he says, you know, when you left there, you really didn't know where to go and what to do. The easy way looked like you'd, uh, you'd, you'd, pass, you'd pass through the coastline area to get to where I wanted you to go, but the easy way looked like you'd go through the coastline by the way of the Philistines, but God said, no, if you go that way, the, the area of the Philistines would discourage your heart. You would see those giants, and you'd see those warlike nations, and you would see their hostility and their paganism, and you'd be discouraged. So God, the Bible says God led them another way, and God led them through the wilderness, and they were wondering, how are we going to make our way to the wilderness, and where does this all lead to? And that's how our lives are sometimes. We wonder, how is God leading? 
inviting me. You say, God, I don't understand this. Everything seems so cloudy and so murky and so dark. And I feel like a scuba diver in some very dark, murky waters. I can't see beyond my hand right in front of my face. And God, how are you leading me? And some, I think, this morning who in our church are going through trials and difficulties are kind of wondering right now, how is God leading me? I really can't see beyond today. I just really don't know what's going to happen. You've got a doctor's diagnosis or you've gotten a late rent notice and you've got an eviction notice and you've got a pink slip and you're told that your job is being phased out or whatever it may be or you've been given some adverse news about your health and you really can't see beyond your hand in front of your face and you're wondering everything seems so murky but God says here in chapter 4 verse 5 he said listen I'm going to give you a cloud by day and a fire by night representing the precious presence of God I'll remind you this morning God's presence never fails you God's presence is always there in your life he said here I'll do it for Upon all the glory, then he says, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. And he said in verse 6, there should be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a cover from storm and from the rain. And all God was saying is, listen, I'm going to give you a cloud by day and a fire by night. I still haven't left you. By the way, God hasn't left you either, amen? And he says there will be a tent, a covering. He calls in verse 6 a tabernacle. The shadow in the daytime. Listen, when your trials get hot, I remind you, get under the shadow of God's almighty hand. Amen. A place of refuge. Their hearts are encouraged as we transition to chapter 5. Isaiah is saying, God is saying, now I sing to my well-beloved. Jesus is the well-beloved. Amen. Do you love Jesus this morning? I said, do you love Jesus this morning? Now will I sing to my well-beloved. A song touching my beloved. Notice this morning we see, first of all, an unparalleled romance. The lyrics to this song is found in these first few verses. Use the symbol of a vineyard. Now will I sing of my well-beloved concerning his vineyard. Isaiah loved the Lord. God is saying here, my well-beloved, the one who I love with all my heart, loves his people. Heritage Baptist Church, God loves you, amen? He loves his church. You love the church, amen? And he said here, my beloved has a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. Now, this unparalleled romance is speaking to us this morning about God's love for us. God loves you. I think for all of us this morning, one of our greatest insecurities we have, no matter how strong we may be, greatest insecurity all of us have is just wanting to know that we're loved. Just wanting to know that somebody cares. Just wanting to know that somebody's praying for us, amen? Just wanting to know in our darkest moment, our deepest needs, that somebody loves us. I want to tell you this morning, God loves you today. P.P. Bliss wrote a song, I am so glad that our Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I'm so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. If I forget him and wander away, still he doth love me wherever I stray. Back to his dear loving arms would I flee when I remember that God loves me. Listen, this morning I remind you today there's devotion in that love. 
this romance, if you would, God's love for you and I has not changed from day one. God loves you. Listen, John 3, 16, we know that verse. But I want you to think with me for just a minute. When Jesus told that verse to Nicodemus in the dark of night, he said this, For God so loved the world. Listen, that love began. That love began when God created us. That love continued even in spite of man's sin. When we left that place of innocence to that place of conscience, that place of where sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so then death has passed upon all men for all have sinned. But the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we think about this. He's talking about a song of his beloved touching his vineyard. There's a faithful devotion and love. Now, there's something about real love that should never get away from us. And there's something about God's love for us that should never get away from us. And that's the fact there is a faithful devotion. Devotion implies commitment, companionship, and truthfulness in a relationship. God loves you and I with an everlasting love. Go with me quickly to to Romans chapter 8. I don't have this in your notes, but go with me very quickly to Romans chapter 8. Because when we look at Romans chapter 8, we're reminded about this faithful devotion of God's love for us. Romans chapter 8, please. In Romans chapter 8, writing to believers who are going through trials and difficulties and experiencing the walk of the Spirit and being encouraged to continue in the walk of the Spirit, God had to remind them. He had to replace their insecurity with security. He had to replace their, their doubts with faith and belief. And he asked this question in verse 35. He said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You look at that, that listing of things. It's a reminder to us that the love of God for us there's a faithful devotion his love for us is completely inseparable nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus Jesus. tribulation won't separate us distress will not separate us persecution will not separate us famine will not separate us nakedness will not separate us peril will not separate us the sword will not separate us he says for it is written for thy sake we are killed all the day long we are counted as sheep for the slaughter listen we are not we are it's inseparable but listen we are unconquerable when we have the love of Christ and we settle our securities, our insecurities and his security, listen in verse 37, he reminds us, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You might feel like you're defeated and you might feel like you're trampled on and you might feel like there's no hope for tomorrow, but I remind you this morning, brother and sister in Christ, if somebody going through a deep trial or about to go into a deep trial, God loves you and you are more than a conqueror through him that loved you so. He goes on by telling us, for I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's the faithful devotion. But notice, secondly, there's a fervent desire in this romance. Man, when you're in love, you want to be with with the one you love, amen? I mean, we use the word companionship so lightly. Every husband ought to want to be with his wife, and every wife ought to want to be with her husband, amen? You want to be with the one you love. A fervent desire. You want the best for them. Notice God expresses his desire. He said in verse 1, he's talked about his devotion. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Verse 1, he expresses his devotion to them. And notice in verses 2 and 3, he expresses his desire for them. Listen, he loved them so much. Here's what God did. He said, first of all, he said, I'm going to, here's what I'll do. He says, I'm going to get this hill prepared. I, I see this hill here that nobody sees potential in, but he says, I see potential in this hill. And he says, I'm going to take this hill, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to cultivate this hill, and I'm going to till the ground, and I'm going to break up the fallow ground, and I'm going to get it all prepared, and I'll create an irrigation system so when this vineyard is planted, that, that there'll be irrigation, proper irrigation for this. And when it, when it rains, when the rain season comes, that the rain will collect adequately and not just roll down the hill, but every vine that's planted there would receive it. And he goes on beyond, and he says, listen, I, I'm going to protect this vineyard. He said in verse 2, I'm going to fence it. And he says, I'm going to put a wall around it. And he says, I'm going to protect it so that, that vermin and animals don't come in and nibble on the vines. And, you know, we read in the Song of Solomon, it talks about the little foxes spoil the vines. And one of the great predators they had in those days were foxes or, 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 or animals like that that were small enough that they would invade, the, invade a vineyard and start nibbling at the vine. It could destroy the vineyard. They would just tear away at it. And he says, I'm going to put a, I'm going to put a stone fence around that and I'm going to fence it. And then he said, in addition to that, the the the, the land and the hillsides there were known for having a lot of rocks and debris and 
If you're going to have a good vineyard, you're going to grow good things. You've got to go out there and painstakingly pick up those rocks and get them out. You've been through that. You understand here in California, at least this part of California, Northern California, a lot of our, our top soil is rocky and clay-like. And, and if you're going to grow something there, you've got to break it up. And as you break it up, you find that there's a lot of rocks and debris. You want to clear all that out if you're going to grow something so that the roots can get down very deep there. And here he's telling us in verse 2, God said, listen, I'm, going to, I'm not only going to prepare that vineyard. He said that the hill for this vineyard, he said, I'm going to put a fence around it so that it can grow uh, uh, protected and uh, undeterred and unhindered. And he said, I'm going to gather out of it all the stones thereof. I'm going to, he said, I'm going to get all the stones out. Hey, aren't you glad this morning that whatever stones are in your life, Jesus takes them out? He gathers those stones of affliction, those stones of discouragement. He gathers those stones that blind us. He gathers those stones that hurt us. He gathers those stones that we stub our feet on. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus takes those stones out of your life? Then he says, I'm going to put the choicest vine in it. Those days they learned cross-pollination. They wanted the choices vine. They wanted that the grapes that would grow out that would be sweet and succulent and delicious. As soon as they're harvested, they'd be ready for the market. They'd be ready for consumption. He said, I'm going beyond that. I'm putting a wine press in. I mean, I'm here permanently. The wine press represented somebody who was very serious about what he was doing. They were going to crush this and make it into juice, and they were going to process it. And then he said, they're on, and, and, he, and he did that, and he put a tower in the midst of it. They had two choices of dwellings they would put inside of a vineyard. We saw in chapter 1, we read about a cottage that was there. We think of a cottage as something that would have a foundation, but in those days, it was just a kind of a shack. Cottage represented somebody who really wasn't investing well into their, into their vineyard, and it was something that was just kind of haphazardly put together. It was just a shack. God said, I'm going to put a tower in the midst of this vineyard. Man, I'm going to build a tower. Listen, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Amen. The righteous runneth into it and is safe, Solomon said. Listen, God said, I'm going to be in the midst of it. I'm going to be that tower. I'll be that strong tower. I'll be there to do, be on the lookout. I'll be there to watching everything every single day. I'll be watching day and night what's going on. Hey, God is in the midst of his vineyard. God is in the midst of his church. God is in the midst of his people. He's there. Listen, he puts a stone around us. He puts a wall around us. He gets the stones out of our life. He puts a tower in there, and he plants the choices vine. Listen, the choices vine has the idea here of you and I being people that were taken out of Egypt, taken out of sin, and he saved us. And he's saying here to Israel, here's what you did. Israel, you were in bondage to Egypt for all those 400 plus years. And he said, I took you out. You're a choice vine. I loved you. I took you out. I bought you by my blood. I brought you out and I planted you in a fruitful hill. You didn't deserve this land. I gave you this land. I gave you this land of promise. And I gave you this place where he describes in Deuteronomy, a place that where it flows with milk and honey, a hilly area and a valley area. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 11, the Bible speaks about it as a place that where the where from the beginning of the year to the end thereof, the hand of the Lord is upon it. And God said, I'll make my face to shine upon you. And God is saying, listen, I did everything to prepare you for the blessings of God. I did everything to get you ready for what, what, you want to re- what I want you to receive. He said, I want only my best for you. I only want my, God's, my will for your life. I just want you to know where I've put you. It's the best place for you to be. And I want you to know what I've done for you. It's the best thing that can be done for you. I've done everything that you need to enjoy salvation. Can I remind you this morning, brother and sister Christ? When you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, once and for all, you're saved. You don't have to be, Jesus doesn't have to die again and again and again for your sin. Listen, once and for all, you're saved. Once you're saved, you're always saved, praise the Lord. And listen, this morning, he did everything for us there. Jesus ascended to heaven, and we have our great high priest in heaven praying for us. But the Bible tells in 2 Peter chapter 1 that our faith is settled in the person of Jesus Christ. And God has given us these exceeding great and precious promises that by these we may be partakers of the divine nature. I remind you this morning, brother Let preached just a couple weeks ago, God's given us a book, and God's given us the promises. They're for every one of God's people. I remind you today where he's planted you. Every promise is available for you to choose and take from, but God gave us more than the promises. He's given us a divine power. It's free power. It's free promises. It's the freedom that God gives us by having that relationship with him. And everything God has done is saying, I want you to know I desire the best for you. Listen this morning, wherever you're at in your Christian life today, God has given you his best. By the way, he gave his best when he gave you Jesus. He gave his best when he gave you his word. We have the promises. We have the power. Unparalleled romance. 
You read the word perfect in the Bible, there's some perfect things God wants for you and I. God places where you can be rooted and to grow. Is God giving you the local New Testament church through the, through the fellowship of the church and through the operation of the church, you can serve God and get planted. God gives us pastors and teachers to help our faith and to grow us in the word of God. God gives us, God gives us the prayers of his saints. God gives us his word to equip us. Listen, I'm reminded today, God has given us his son. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And this was manifested, the love of God towards us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our and all I'm saying this morning, as we read verses 1 and 2, we see an unparalleled romance. We see an unmatched love. We see a love that we cannot, we, 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 we would have difficulty replicating because God loves you and I, and God loves you and I so much. He's giving us his best, and he's doing his best for you and I. We see a second thing this morning. As Isaiah starts to sing this song, we recognize he's singing about God's love for you and me. But where there's an unparalleled romance, I want you to notice in verse 2 an unprofitable rejection. You read verse 2, and you have to think of it in terms of a love ballad. God prepared his people when he took them out of Egypt, he planted them in the land of Israel. And you got to read this in Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, and 30. As God describes the blessings of obedience and the curse of disobedience. And he said things like this. He said, listen, where I've planted you, you're to be the head, not the tail. He said, you're going to lend to many nations, but you're not to borrow from them. You're going to be the head. They're going to look to you. You'll be the leader. You're going to set things in motion. They'll look at your consecration. They'll look at your worship, that you worship one God, and there's only one God, amen? And God said, I've done all these things so you can produce, so that you can be fruitful, so you can be productive. And growing grapes is hard business. You have to be patient if you have a vineyard. But you don't really see the real product for a couple years there or longer. Aren't you glad this morning God's patient with you and I? He waits on us. And if we see the image of a vineyard in verse 2, there's been a lot of work, there's been a lot of effort, a lot of care. He's waited, and as you even read through the Gospels about trees and vines, the grower of it looks forward to seeing the product on that vine or that tree. And he said in verse 2, would you notice this? And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. He looked with expectation, having been patient, having lovingly invested into this vineyard. And the Bible says in verse two, he planted the choicest vine. Harvest time was coming. And he looked, anyway, I almost have the imagination that every day he went there, can I see anything growing? Is there anything there? And starting to see little growth on those vines. And he looked for grapes, and the word grapes has the idea of succulent, juicy, sweet, wonderful grapes. But to his chagrin, notice first the latter part of verse 2. He looked for grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. That's not what he was looking for. Wild grapes are small. Wild grapes are sour. You ever had a sour grape makes your teeth on edge? Like, almost like eating a lemon? It just has, a, it has an acridness to it that is not very tasty. 
But the word for wild in the Hebrew is even a stronger word than that. It literally means worthless and listen to stinky. Kind of like durian, amen? Probably tastes good going down, but getting, to that, getting it to your mouth is really a difficulty, amen? I mean, literally he's saying this. I look for sweet, succulent, wonderful grapes, refreshing grapes. And he said, brought for stinky, small, sour, undesirable grapes. For people whose economy revolves around vineyards and grape harvesting, waiting patiently for the fruit to grow on those vines. The production of wild grapes from a choicest vine does not make sense at all. This vine had already been cross-pollinated. Everything that was invested in it, the soil, the irrigation system, the rain, the, the, the cultivation, it did not make sense at all. But God has a message for us. You see, God looks at your life and mine. We journey over to John chapter 15 for just a minute. As it talks about Jesus being the true vine and the Father being the husband. And you and I are branches of that. You see, it doesn't make sense to God at all that he, he's done everything we need. He has saved us. He puts the Holy Spirit inside of us. We can be filled with the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God, which gives us these precious, divine, exceeding great and precious promises. We have the power of God. We have the local New Testament church. We have pastors and teachers. We have the encouragement of his people. We have the prayers of his people. And on and on and on, all these things we could talk about this morning, of all the blessings of the Christian life, it just doesn't make sense. We have all of these things, and God looks at your life and my life, and he says, okay, the time comes. I've invested in you, and I've poured myself into you, but I'm looking for grapes, but I don't see those kind of grapes. What I see are wild grapes. I see grapes that are sour and set the teeth on edge, and grapes that, are, that appear that they are fermented, and they appear that, they are, that they're rotting, and they're corrupted, and they're, and they're, and they're not very good they're not very palatable and frankly that they've been probably they're moldy grapes and they're not very good grapes and he looks at us he says I look for grapes when I look for grapes I found wild grapes and God asks a question notice verse 4 he speaks to his people he changes the tone it's no longer a song and no longer ballad verses 1 after verses 2 God is speaking to his people through the prophet Isaiah it's almost like it started off like very well and then as if someone who is not trained in music introduces it to a song that hits a major crescendo, a minor chord. And it's like, where did this come from? That just ruined a perfect song, amen? I was at a conference not too long ago I was preaching at and people were asked last minute to sing a special number and I Never would never do this, but they were asked to do it, and they were not prepared, and, and it, the, 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 just the notes were clashing, and you, you know, just, it was just really not pleasant to the ears there, and I, know, I think they felt that way too, but they wanted to coincide and do what they were told to do, and that's what's happening here. Beautiful song, but there's a clashing at the end, and it doesn't end on a good note, at least kind of, a, kind of, a, kind of an idea like, what's wrong with the song? It seems incomplete, and this song doesn't sound right, and it doesn't sound like a love song anymore, and it doesn't sound like a ballad anymore. It sounds like, it sounds like something's clashing here. And he, and he says here, he says, I want you to listen to me. He says, you judge between me and you. And he says in verse 4, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Brother and sister in Christ, God's done everything in our lives that we need to be used for his glory to serve him, to be fruitful, to have prayer lives that see God answering prayer all the time, to have lives that glorify him and please him. I mean, listen, nobody's disadvantaged in this room. Everybody's got the same power, and everybody's got the same Bible, and everybody's got the same Holy Spirit, and everybody's got the same divine promises. The question is, what's going on inside of here that's producing wild grapes instead of good grapes? What could I have done more? What could I have done more? He's looking for fruit. I look, verse 2, that it should bring forth grapes. 
I mean, let's get in our hearts this morning. God's looking at our lives today. Are we giving him a return on his investment? Are we giving him grapes? Is there fruit? You say, Pastor Vaughn, what kind of fruit? Well, I think, think of Galatians chapter 5, verses 22, 23. There's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there's no law. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5, 9, for, but the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Listen, where there's goodness and righteousness and truth, you always will find the fruit of the Spirit. Where there's goodness, righteousness, and truth, you'll always find the fruit of the Spirit. There's a fruit of answered prayer, John 15, 7. And if you abide in me, my words abide in you. You shall ask what you will and shall be done unto you. Here is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. There's a fruit that remains, that of souls being saved, John 15, 16. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you, nor danger that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. There's a fruit of holiness, Romans 6, 22. And deals with our sanctification. There's a fruit of righteousness Paul speaks of in Philippians 1.11 and Hebrews 12.11. There's a fruit of every good work that Paul talks about in Colossians 1.10. And listen, we don't, we don't, it doesn't take much imagination. If you just start looking through the word of God, there's a fruit of the spirit. And the fruit of the spirit should be found in goodness, righteousness, and truth. And there's the fruit of holiness. And there's the fruit of... There's the fruit of, 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 of answered prayer, and there's a fruit that remains, and the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of every good work. I mean, it doesn't leave much of the imagination to understand today that it's not very difficult to produce fruit, but the question is, God says, I've given you the divine promises, and I've, I've placed my Holy Spirit inside of you, and he says, I've given you the blessing of the Word of God, and he says, I've given you the local New Testament church, and I've given you pastors and teachers, and he says, I've given you encouragement, I've saved you, I've set your feet on a solid rock, I put a new song in your heart. He says, I look for grapes but i found wild grapes instead he's saying listen i've done everything you need but where's the fruit where's the grapes that i want to see produced out of that life he did everything he needed and so notice verse three he says now what happens to jerusalem and men of judah judge i pray you between me and my vineyard i want you to evaluate he said i want you to consider why there's wild grapes instead of succulent grapes you notice verses 8 to 22 very quickly. It's because of sinful corruption. As this chapter is being written, or was written, the nation of Israel and Judah were two separate nations. Israel was called the northern tribe, consisted of 10 of the nations, 10 of the tribes. Judah was called the southern nation, consisted of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. As we'll see when we get to chapter 7 and 8 a little bit more. Israel was corrupted with sinful idolatry. God tells us, we'll see this in one of the chapters, that in so many years after this prophecy, Israel would no longer exist as a nation because it had forfeited its privileges. He looked for grapes and he found wild grapes. <laughs> Judah was not very far behind. At the time of this writing, as we get to chapter 6, was towards the tail end of King Uzziah's reign. And King Uzziah, who was filled with pride and took advantage of his God-given gifts and responsibilities and abused them, if I can say that today. We get to chapter 5, in verses 8 to 22, and God says, I, I, I need to tell you why this vine I've planted is not producing the kind of grapes and very quickly, what you notice in verse 8, verses 8 to 22, he gives off six or seven woes against Jerusalem and Judah. A woe means bad stuff is going to come to judge you in your actions. And we say, woe is me, you know. But God is saying, woe unto you. He says, it's going to be bad. And he tells us about this, and notice verse quickly, he says in verse 8, Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. And all he's saying there very quickly, he's addressing the sin of covetousness. They were buying houses and houses. Houses were supposed to be kept in the family. They were to be passed down as to follow the law of inheritance. But instead, manipulation was going on, and in Israel they were 
buying up more homes. And instead of houses being passed down to future generations, they're buying it up. And that's what he describes here as being house being laid to house to house and laid field to field till there's no place. And he says, basically, what was underscoring all of that, there was a spirit of covetousness. They were just greedy. They wanted more and more and more. And they were being covetous. And the Bible reminds us today that God told Moses, listen, when you put people in places of leadership, they must be men of truth, hating covetousness. Habakkuk 2.9 says, woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Listen, covetousness is a sin. Everybody in this room, beginning with me, we all have. Woe unto them that are covetous. But then he talks about a second woe. The second woe, notice verse 10. He says, woe unto them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink that continue until night to wine and flame them. The second sin, he's calling out the sin of drinking alcohol and the sin of drunkenness. You say, does, is this a past? does the Bible say, say anything about drinking alcohol? Yes, it does. In Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker. String, strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs 23, verses 29 to 32. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contention, who is babbling, who is wounds without cause, who is redness of eyes, that they they that tarry long at the wine, that they go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent, stingeth like an adder. Notice verse 10. God is condemning the people of God for giving themselves. They were given to drunkenness. I mean, they got up first thing in the morning and they were drinking alcoholic beverages. They were fermenting their grape juice. They were drinking alcoholic beverages. And the Bible says here that they may follow strong drink and they continue till night till wine inflamed them. They were, they were basically drunk they were given to drinking day and night. They couldn't get the wine away from them. We read different passages in the book of Amos and Hosea and over here about God's people being given over to alcohol. Let me just say it this morning with all the love I can in my heart. God's people are to abstain from alcoholic beverages. Amen. There should be no question in God's people's heart abstaining from alcoholic beverages. Alcoholic beverages are produced when there's an additive given to it, yeast. It ferments it. It corrupts it. The Bible called that yeast or that additive leaven. Leaven is a picture of sin. The Bible tells us that leaven is always a picture of sin. And when we look at that in the Bible, we have to recognize today, that's why, that's why when we read about the Lord's table, it was not wine that Jesus administered. It was not wine. It was the fruit of the vine. Freshly squeezed grape juice. God, Jesus is a, listen, Jesus would never corrupt himself. He was the sinless one. He would never corrupt himself with wine. He would never corrupt himself with those things. I've read what the new evangelical authors say. They say things, well, it could be that they mixed a little bit of wine with a little bit of water. I don't believe Jesus did any of that. I don't think he would have compromised himself on that. Don't read that in the Bible. You can't add that to the Bible. That's adding to the word of God and brings a curse upon your life for adding to the word of God on that. Then he goes on. He talks about the love for their sin. Look at verse 18. Woe to them that are wise. Uh, excuse me, verse 18, he says, uh, woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as they were with a cart rope. I mean, the, you know the images there of, a, of drawing a cart or oxen with a large rope? He says the sins that they carry are so big and so heavy, they're literally carrying out in public. They're not ashamed of their sin. They're walking off. And he says, I look for grace, but instead I find wild grace. They're not ashamed of it. The Bible says men love darkness rather than light. Then very quickly, verse 20, call, God calls them out for calling good evil. Look what he says. One to them to call evil good and good evil. To put darkness for light and light for darkness. And bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He's saying, listen, they have, they have no scruples. They have no integrity about their lives. They call evil good and good evil. He says they're at the point where they're, they're just mirroring everything. And everything's always a gray area. Listen, when you study scripture, there are are no gray areas. It's either dark or it's white. And then we go a little bit further, and God's calling out in verse 21. God calls out their pride. Look what he says in verse 21. Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. In other words, they're, 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 they're being wise in their own eyes. They're, they're not trusting God. They're not having faith in God. They say, well, I'm going to choose my way. I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. And then in verse 22, again, God calls out their drunkenness again. Woe to them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. And he's calling out the leaders who, who are setting a bad example, who themselves are doing that. Listen, fathers, you're a leader. And 
single moms, you're a leader in your home. And listen, today, if you're having struggles in this area of alcohol, I would encourage you this morning, that, or maybe some addictive substance of some kind, I would encourage you this morning to claim the power of Jesus Christ in your life and surrender to the Lord and realize, according to his word, God calls these one of the things that he will subject a woe upon. And today, God wants us to be a holy people and a pure people and a right people. He wants us to produce grapes that are pleasing to him and not wild grapes. And so he talks about the sinful corruption, but notice verses 5 and 6, he speaks about the serious consequences. He says, verse 5, now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Now he patiently waited. I said earlier that the vineyard business, growing grapes was a very tedious, very long business. You didn't have patience for that. You didn't see immediate fruit. But time would come along when the fruit would be produced in two years or three years, some very good things. And God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. Time came that it bore forth wild grapes. This is what he said. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned, nor digged, but there shall come upon briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And God's basically saying here this, the chastening hand of God. He says, listen, you're not going to produce the fruit. You can delight yourself in your ways and sinful corruption. He says, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take the wall away. I'll move the pine press out. I'll bring the tower down. I'll lay it waste. You'll be trodden down. Spiritual defeat instead of spiritual victory. Now, how, how does he do that? Look at verse 10. Here's one of the ways. Financial reversals. If you're not tithing, if you're stingy, God tells us in Malachi chapter 3, there will be financial reversals. Here's one of them. He says, listen, you can lay house to house and field to field. But in verse 10, yea, 10 acres of a vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of a homer shall yield an ephah. You know what he's saying? You're going to have financial reversals. Not honoring God, you'll have financial reversals. Here's another one, verse 15. In verse 15, he says, and the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the haughty shall be humbled. He's saying, listen, if we don't humble ourselves before God, as we saw in a previous message, he will humble us instead. He tells in verse 13, there will be bondage and captivity. Would you notice verse 13? Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dry, dried up with thirst. Listen today. If we're not honoring God, we're not producing fruit, God will lead us, allow us to get into that path where we'll, become, we'll be in bondage to our sin and bondage to bad habits and bondage to things that we really don't want to be a captive of. And then verse 14, the more serious things he talks about. He talks about death. He says, therefore, hell or death has enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure and their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he that rejoices shall descend into you. He says, listen, if you don't turn around, he said, God has to inflict us very, very seriously there. God sends chastening. Verse 4, God asks a question, what could I have done more to my vineyard? You see, we see an unparalleled romance. God, God loves us, and God took the first step forward. And listen, more long before you and I figured out what we're supposed to do in the Christian life, God did everything to prepare us to be fruitful and abounding and to serve him and to honor him and to love him. He made the way. But then we see from there, we see this unprofitable rejection. God's people, instead of being, uh, being thankful for what God was doing and stepping into the path of producing what we should, God is saying here, listen, what you really have done, you've allowed all these sinful corruptions to come into place. And he says, because of that, I have no choice but to inflict you with serious consequences. What could I have done more? What could I have done more? He says, listen, Israel was on the brink of being annihilated, just being put away as a nation, and Judah was not very far away, and, was, and King Uzziah was going away from God and was leading several people in a different direction, and, and there were people in Judah that had, were not ashamed that they were now, they were worshiping idols in addition to doing all the worship of God. God says, what could I have done more? And listen, God, every single week, every single time we open his word, he's coming after us over and over again to appeal to us, to be fruitful, to be abounding in the work of the Lord. What could I have done more? As we close this morning, where do we leave that? That question's bothersome. What could I have done more? I'm thankful to tell you as I look at verse 25, he just keeps on doing more. Amen? 
He asks, what can I do more? But he just keeps on doing more, and he doesn't stop. And I'm going to thank God this morning that when we think there's not enough grace, there's more grace. And when you think there's not enough love, there's more love. And when we think that God may not want to forgive us, there's more forgiveness. And we think that God doesn't want us, there's more God. I'm reminded this morning when he says, what could I have done more? He just wants to give you more and more and more and more. And I look at verse 25, and I'm encouraged. He says, therefore, is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he stretched forth his hand against them, and has smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the street. And that sounds really bad, because God's saying, listen, he sent his chasing hand upon his people, and they were feeling the brunt of it. They were feeling their economy was affected, and their families were affected, and their health was affected, and their health was affected, and their landscapes were affected, and their vineyards were affected. And he's saying all that they felt it, they felt God work in them. And he says here in verse 25, for all this is anger is not turned away, but... And I love how he positioned there. His hand is stretched out still. Aren't you glad about that this morning? His hand is stretched out still. There's more mercy. There's more forgiveness. There's a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. Listen, God is not done with you. Aren't you glad about that this morning? His hand is stretched out still. This is God's mercy. Mercy's love extended when there should have been judgment. Mercy's pity for someone who deserves to be punished. Mercy's God's hand stretched out still. The Civil War was ending. And General Lee and the Confederates surrendered and put up the white flag. The Union was still very hostile and very bitter against them. As far as they were concerned, all the Confederates should be hanged. President Lincoln got up at the end of the Civil War as he declared an end to it. And standing on the balcony of the White House, he spoke to a large group of people that assembled around the White House. He told them about the policy he established. You can read about it yourself in the history of the Civil War. The policy he had in mind for the South and all President Lincoln wanted to do at the time was get everybody reconciled, get everybody on the right page. You've read some of the things that President Lincoln has did during his time, he was an eloquent speaker and a very powerful speaker, a very passionate speaker. Some didn't take very well to his speech. At the end of his speech, a senator by the name of Harlan, in a sarcastic tone, said, what shall we do with these rebels? As far as he's concerned, he didn't hear a thing that the president had to say. What shall we do with these rebels? As he said, so he said it loud enough that the crowd that assembled there, they, there was those hostile feelings came out because he knew how to rile them up. And almost like the crucifixion of Jesus, they said, crucify him, crucify him. Those people assembled around the White House said, hang them, hang them, hang them. President Lincoln had a little son by the name of Tad. Tad possessed his father's wit and his humor. He possessed his father's quick thinking on his feet. He wisdom beyond his years as a nine, ten-year-old boy. Quickly, Tad came up to the place where his dad was out on the balcony. He pulled at his coattails. He said, Dad, Father, he said, yes, son. He says, don't hang them. Hold on to them. And President Lincoln said, ah, that's what we'll do. And he shouted out, we're not going to hang them. We'll hold on to them. Mercy's God holding on to you when you should be hung. Amen. Mercy's God holding on to us. God, mercy's God saying, I'm not going to let you go. Mercy's God saying, you got another chance. And mercy's saying, I still will forgive you. And mercy's saying, listen, there's another opportunity. And mercy's saying, you can still be fruitful. And mercy's saying that God still believes in us. And mercy's still saying that God sees good in us. And mercy's still saying that God can use you. And mercy's still saying, there's a place for you in God's work. And mercy's saying, even though you judged, you deserve to be hung, I'm still going to hold on to you. And I'm thankful this morning. I'm standing here before you, thankful that God's holding on to me. Amen. more of God's mercy. What could I have done more? God's saying here, his hand is stretched out still. Quickly, there's restoration of mercy. What is restoration? Well, there's forgiveness. No turning back. No digging up old bones. And where there's forgiveness, there's fellowship is restored. We can embrace and we can shake hands and we can pray together. 
We can serve Jesus together. We can, we can, this like Peter and John, the Bible says Peter and John went up together in the temple at the hour of prayer. Listen, we need more of God's people, men and women, boys and girls. We need men and men and ladies and ladies to go up together and serve God. They need to agree on Jesus. Let's put down our preferences and agree on Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness, there's fellowship, but there's favor. And then secondly, notice there's redemption and mercy. What could I have done more? What could I have done more? God had the Old Testament sacrifices. There was the Passover sacrifice that had to be repeated for the nation. There was the Day of Atonement when two goats were taken. One goat was killed, and the blood of that goat was offered on the Day of Atonement for the sins of people. The second goat was taken. That was called the scapegoat, and the high priest would put his hands over that goat, and he'd pray over that goat, and all the sins of the nation would be cast on that goat, and the goat would be taken way out to the wilderness to be sent away, and it was a reminder. It was a very beautiful picture to us that on the Day of Atonement, it pictured what Jesus does for you and I when you get saved, what Jesus did for you and I on the cross that he died for our sins he he paid the payment price that, that satisfied God's demands by shedding his blood but when we call upon Jesus as our savior our sins are put away our sins go away our sins don't bother us no more it's kind of like the song what sins are you talking about I don't remember them anymore amen And God, he forgives us of our sins, and he cleanses us from our sins. And, and he, but, you know, the Day of Atonement wasn't sufficient, and, and Passover wasn't sufficient. Listen, there had to be more than just a Passover, and there had to be more than the Day of Atonement. God said, what could I have done more? I'll tell you what he did more. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for your sins, not for your sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. God commended his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, what could he have done more? He gave us his son. His son died for us. He shed his blood for us. He died on the cross. And praise God, three days later, he rose again from the dead. And he offers the gift of eternal life to everyone who believes on him. He punished Jesus for your sin. He poured out his wrath for sin on Jesus when it should have been poured out on you and me. What could he have done more? He gives us redemption through his, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me close with this. We're done. I read a story where a woman left her husband just had some difficulties and she left him husband felt very remorseful about what happened and he called the police and filed a missing persons report not too long after that they found his wife a couple counties over she located they located her they said sir would you like us to take you to your wife where we found her he started thinking, he says, you know, I've really messed up. I have had time to think about this. I've really messed up. And so he's like, no, he says, I'll reach out to her. So he started writing letters to his wife. He found out where she was at, he's writing letters to her. Please come back home. I love you. I'm sorry, I'm really messed up, and so forth, so forth. One week went by, two weeks went by, three weeks went by, four weeks went by, five weeks went by, six weeks went by, seven weeks went by, eight weeks go by. No response. He's thinking, man, she must really be mad at me. And so he got in his car. Drove a couple counties over. And I want you to imagine with me, it's kind of like going from Alameda County over to Santa Clara County. <laughs> Found the address, got out of his car. And very carefully went to the place where she was staying. Knocked on the door, someone opened the door. He said, oh yeah, she's right here. Let me bring you to the room. Uh, let me get her in out. I'll bring you to the room. He was very nervous. He was wondering. Have I done everything I could? His wife was sitting in the room. He walked in. Their eyes caught each other. Without even saying anything, they embraced. Tears were flowing. Without even saying a word, you could sense in that room that there was forgiveness. And steps for restoration were in place. And he said, honey, I messed up. I'm really sorry. I really messed up. She said, I forgave you a long time ago. 
I forgave you when it happened. She just said, I had to just go away. I'm sorry. And she said, I'm sorry. I should have stayed. And then, as they sat down for minutes, he said, how about you come home? She said, I'm ready. I'm packed already. She says, I've waited for this day. They load up her stuff in the car, driving on the highway. He reached out and held her hand. She embraced his hand. He said, can I ask you a question? She said, sure. He said, I've written you for months and for weeks. And I have a response from you. Why is it today you're coming home so easily? And she said, listen, and I'm done. She said, he asked a question. I've written you. And you didn't respond. But today, we're going home. And you just decided to come to me so easily. Why? And she said this to him. Because those were just letters. Today, you came in person. Hey, when God gave us the Old Testament, we had his letter. But then Jesus came in person. Amen? He came in person. He came in person. He came in person to take your place and mine. He loves us through his letters, but he came in person. And I'm going to tell you what we read in Isaiah 5 is a little rough. But he's here in person. That cloud by day. That fire by night. To be over every dwelling and be over all of our assemblies. We're his vineyard. We're his people. We're the people of God. We're God's chosen seed. God's people he loves. He said, what could I have done more? And I'll close with this. He gave us Jesus. That's what he did more. You don't need anything more than Jesus. Amen? Amen. You got everything you need in Jesus. This morning, if you're not saved, he gave you Jesus for your sins. He came in person. And this morning, we were just sitting on the sideline. What kind of fruit's coming off your vine? Grapes? Or stinking, sour, undesirable grapes? I'm thankful to tell you today, we can get it fixed today. And we can put forth fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. No matter who we are, no matter how old we are, we can bring forth fruit. He said, abide in me and I in you, and you'll bring forth fruit. Let's be fruitful for God's glory. Would you let him use you today?